Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The pattern of Russian military history is defeat, learning, forced development, victory, or at least um, avoidance of defeat. Well, that's against the Swedes, the French, us, the Germans twice, or even the Afghans, actually. Or the Chechens, as made clear to me very recently by someone who spent a long time in the Chechens war, Chechen wars. That's the pattern. Hello and welcome to this episode of Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. Frank Ledwidge is a war studies academic. He's been a lawyer, at one time a deployed serviceman, and has experience from conflicts all over the world. He's also the author of several books on military affairs, including the profoundly important and challenging work called Losing Small Wars. Last year, Frank and I were in the same delegation where we visited Kyiv and met a range of Ukrainian officials, politicians, soldiers and other experts. We drew on that experience to have a wide-ranging discussion about the situation in Kyiv, in Ukraine, Russia's response and the threats that now face the West. Perhaps we could start with a, an attempt to try to sort of see the phases of this war. So what, what were your kind of initial thoughts when you heard that Russia was was making a full-scale invasion? And, and how did that contrast with what actually happened? Like you and many others, I felt it was rather epochal, you know, that the idea of the operational part of the Russian army invading another country in full panoply for the first time since 1979, and even then it wasn't the whole, by no means the whole force or the whole effective force. It was nightmarish. And I think like many people, I spent the first few days following all this stuff in a state of, I would not say shock, that overstates it, but gobsmacked surprise. Mm. Understanding, of course, that many observers, because obviously literally observers in the intelligence world, but others, those who have an interest in this kind of thing, watched the build-up for months and months before. And uh, and seeing seeing the grads, the rocket systems, rocket artillery systems, strike Kharkiv on the first day was quite shocking, you know. One felt for the people underneath that barrage. Were you were you surprised that the Russians actually did it? Um, because there was a there was a bit of a division, wasn't there, between those that saw this? And I, I speak to myself, you know, rather than point at anyone else. I I thought that Russia, right up until the last moment, I thought that they were still probably bluffing because you could see there were so many advantages that they got from from threatening war, whereas the, the disadvantages of actually fighting a war are pretty obvious. What, what was your sense at that time? It was a toss of the coin for those who are watching. I, I thought they would do it, but you know, thinking they were going to do it was a very different thing from waking up on the 24th, four in the morning and seeing what had happened after watching what was going on overnight. As you know, there was a bluff about a year before that, yeah, previous spring, uh, although slightly less flagged, I think, than this one. Now, yeah. I thought they would be only only because it was such a deployment of force. Yeah, but um, one and one, you know, you feel uh, you know, military operations take a great deal of planning. You would think that take a great deal of briefing, standing troops up for that, aircraft, air crews, ground crews for operations like that would be very difficult to wind down. Then we found out that they hadn't been briefed, that they hadn't actually been stood up for the 
or, or, or nor had any operations been particularly planned or if planned, planned effectively or well. But yeah, that, that was my thought. And that remains one of the mysteries of the first stage of the war, that it was um, here was a, a country with a with a huge military, uh, a huge range of capabilities. I might not say hugely capable, but certainly with huge potential. Uh, and yet it, it seemed to not really have a plan for the invasion. Um, what What's your best sort of understanding of why that might have been? It was a, a significant, to put it mildly, intelligence failure. And you and I, at one end or the other, have been in places where that's happened before, yeah. uh, Iraq and so forth. And uh, I would suggest that this was a similar sort of failure. My best, the best account I have is, is that it's actually connected in an odd way to the Salisbury business, where Skripal was injured and two Brit, or one Brit was killed and another seriously injured by Russian GIU agents. And of course, that was a massive cock-up. And the story that, that appeals to me most, I think does he, the evidence would suggest that there's some truth to it, is that uh, Putin, having been uh, apprised of this disastrous operation, was then, uh, then had to undergo, or his briefers had to tell him that hundreds of Russian SVR and other agents in Europe were being sent home all across Europe and the United States as a result of this mishap in Salisbury, brutal and fatal though it was, and that all this, Putin felt, was the fault of the GIU who had messed all this up. And we all know that the excellent work by uh, Bellingcat and others to reveal who these criminals were. And subsequently, it appears that the GIU director was summoned to the, uh, the desk of the leader, given a dressing down, so, uh, met an unfortunate end, I think, no doubt by accident, three months later. But the output was that the GIU was forbidden from getting involved in, in, in further national level operations. And of course, the GIU is military intelligence, the equivalent yeah. In Ukraine is a Gur or the Hur, uh, which is the outfit led by this uh, General Boganov, which mm. has proven very effective, particularly in Crimean operations. So when you take the military intelligence far more capable than our military intelligence and much, much bigger out of operational planning, you're left with the FSB. And it's my understanding the FSB replacement for KGB was much less cognizant and aware of the degree of military preparedness of the Ukrainian armed forces and the attitude taken by the people. And it's not surprising in a way, though perhaps the latter might be a bit surprising, but certainly the um, their military assessment of or their assessment of the Ukrainian military was way off the mark. They assessed yeah. apparently that they were would be quickly defeated, which explained by the way the form of or the scheme of deployment of Russian forces, which often had Rosgvardia, which is the, essentially the military police or the Carabinieri type military in the uh, at the uh, in the in the uh, vanguard to keep order as the main units cruise through. The assumption being the Ukrainian forces will have dissolved. That assumption based on FSB reports. So GIU yeah. wasn't involved. So I mean that's the best I you know I can come up with. It seems pretty plausible, uh, but but who knows? And there's I think one of the bits of evidence that supports that theory is that. There were huge amounts of tear gas were brought yeah. um, because obviously the assumption was that crowd control would be the issue, not not fighting, you know, take fighting to take an airfield or, or fighting to you know seize control of major cities. But it, seem, it does seem clear that um, the, the troops weren't briefed. They were, most troops weren't briefed. They're going to combat from the air perspective. It is almost certain. Well, it's not. So, it, it, it is the case that the air crews were briefed the night before that there was to be a war which would come as something of a surprise to the air and ground crews since these things right. tend to require a bit more preparation than a few yeah. others. Um, so with, with that in mind, um, the first stage of the conflict, of course, the, the sort of heroic Ukrainian defence, particularly of Kyiv, um, speaks for itself. But uh, fairly quickly, um, events uh, sort of moved forward uh, and you, you had 
I think sort of two notable things. There was the the fight for Kherson and then the the fight for Bakhmut, which arguably is still ongoing. Yes, Bakhmut is currently in Russian hands. This is in the Donbass, but but effectively you've had a front line in in that part of the country that that has not moved very far. Um when we were in uh Kiev together, and and you know, there's no secret we attended various briefings at at, at, at various ministries in 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 Ukraine, there was a lot of anticipation around Ukraine's so-called counteroffensive, and there was also an argument being made that uh, the very costly defense of Bakhmut was worthwhile from the Ukrainian perspective because it was degrading Russian forces. Um, with with the benefit of uh, of of several months now of of uh, you know hindsight. What what's your feeling on on those on those two discussions? Maybe we should start with the counteroffensive. There was the counteroffensive didn't start while we were there, but it was definitely imminent, and there was a lot of anticipation and a, a lot of expectation that uh, the Ukrainians would would reach the Sea of Azov, that they would sweep through, cut a sort of a, a channel through the the Russian occupied zone in in the south and east of Ukraine. Uh, it's very clear, obviously, that that failed. But that came after a lot of training in, in Western countries, a lot of training of equipping and so on. Um, so from, from your sort of perspective as a, as a military analyst, uh, what 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 are your what's your sort of understanding of what went wrong there? You said that the Ukrainian army or part of them, I think nine brigades, which works mm. out of the, somewhere between 40 and 50,000 people, had a lot of training. And it certainly seemed so at the time. And I knew many people who, uh, from my day-to-day -day job, uh, who, who had been involved in teach, teaching or training them, yeah, what we call Operation Interflex. But when you take a step back, and they were very impressed with them, and they were um, extremely committed to that task, hmm. extremely capable people from our Army, Navy, and Air Force, Army, Air Force, and Marines in that case. And But when you take a step back, five weeks training is less than half of the basic training of British Army troops of any branch. Yeah. It's very little. And it would allow you to have... Uh, it's the kind of training I had when I was in, in the TA 35 years ago, and I was probably as well-trained as that, as they were over, yeah. uh, admittedly over a longer period, which would have been completely inadequate for any kind of involvement in combined operations. Or any operations, actually. And these were raw recruits, weren't they? So it's not that they were getting five weeks on top of being, you know, an experienced infantry soldier or something like that. Yeah, I think they have. I, I, the way it works now, I think, without... I'm not sure. I don't think I'm giving any away. But but I, I think it would be sensible to say that there are different grades of recruits. So you do have, they do have people coming through very experienced. I, I, I don't know how that works. Maybe they train them as NCOs. But they also have, as you say, most people coming through are are, are just are, are simple recruits, off, not quite off the street, but out of um, recruitment offices and cantonments. Uh, yeah. And this applies across Europe. Now, hmm. Most European or NATO countries involved in this in some way. Uh, interestingly, even before the counter-offensive, it was very clear that casualties were extremely high for the Ukrainians and troops were told not to become familiar with these Ukrainian soldiers for the simple reason that their uh, life expectancies generally was not very high, mm. which tells you something about the intensity of the fighting. Perhaps we can get on to yeah. that later. But yeah, anyway, look, in order to be able to conduct those operations that they've been encouraged to conduct by the West, I think there's some fairness in this, you need years of training, you need systems they didn't have, command and control that they didn't have, doctrine they didn't have, an experience that they didn't have, and to a great extent as well, you know, kit that they didn't have. Yeah. So in those circumstances, when placed against extremely well-placed, and, and I mean, from my perspective, I don't think they'll get to the Azov coast, but I certainly thought that their objective would be Tokmak, which would be 30 or 40 kilometres, and that they would they would do that because they had the reconnaissance, they had the I-Star, intelligence surveillance, targeting acquisition reconnaissance, to be able to see the Russian defend, all that kind of stuff that we all thought they would do. And, of course, what we didn't take into account was the huge minefields, the deep and uh, uh, 
the, and the depth and effectiveness of the defences, and the fact, of course, the Russians aren't stupid uh, and had uh, used their time well. Yeah. And that last point you make is rather important because I think, uh, if, I'll be honest about myself, and, and I can't speak for others, in the immediate aftermath of the failed assault on Kiev, I think a lot of people thought the Russians were stupid, basically. I mean, I, obviously not individually sort of idiotic, but at a strategic level, sort of incapable of of understanding their environment and of responding to it. But actually, uh, that was wrong, wasn't it? Yes, and I think there's a historical perspective to this, which is very useful. So the con historical context, and we're not going to get into Russian history, I mean, we know others, others, others equally or, or perhaps even... Or, Less less uh, distinguished podcasts than yours have spent a great deal of time listening to people pontificate about history, uh, but I'm not going to do that. All I'll say is that the the pattern of Russian military history is defeat, learning, forced development, victory, or at least um, avoidance of defeat. Well, that's against the Swedes, the French, us, the Germans twice, or even the Afghans actually. Or the Chechens, as made clear to me very recently by someone who spent a long time in the Chechens war, Chechen wars. That's the pattern. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we go back to going back to the Ukraine counteroffensive. Uh, do you think that they have been, if not pressured, certainly encouraged to take on a type of operation that they were really never going to have been capable of executing? I don't really want to buy into this blame the West for this. You, know, you told us to do this and it didn't work. You know, the Ukrainians have to have some agency in, in this. And then, you know, whilst the Russians aren't stupid, neither the neither the Ukrainian commanders and no. uh, you know they have they had their own perspectives. And one couple of interesting discussions I had back in 2022 in in Ukraine were with uh, with with soldiers or people who knew soldiers very well, and it was made you know whilst we were told that NATO had trained them in mission command, that's a delegation of authority, and, uh, and other techniques over the previous seven years. The truth is that the army of between 700,000 and a million, that, that hadn't percolated at all. This was essentially a Soviet army with Soviet techniques and Soviet command structures and Soviet styles. Soldiers I, I knew in the International Legion, for example, just laughed off the notion that Ukraine had an effective NCO counter, which is what right. you require for combined operations to work properly at a minimum. Uh, so uh, and, and Ukraine, Ukrainian troops and leaders, of course, knew this. So I'm not, I don't really buy into this notion that, that we we put them up to it and didn't work. I think that's a self-exculpation. Uh, but having said that, I think certainly there was an element of self-deception on our on our part, as it were, and, and on the Ukrainians as well. One thing I would say, I did have a conversation with a military historian um, just before the counteroffensive, and we discussed the Battle of Kursk. Mm. which was decided by deep, heavy fortifications and millions of mines put up by the Russians in 1943. Yeah. And the most, I think, the most costly battle of, of the Second World War, if I'm not mistaken. So it, it, it shows yeah, Russia's taxes. willingness to take unbelievable casualties yeah. and still come out with something that's called a victory. Yes, well, Kursk was an out-and-out -out victory, and they were prepared to take the, the brunt of the, the best units and the biggest units in the German army and just, just wear them down over a period of several weeks, which is exactly what they did. And by the way, they were assisted because the Germans delayed. Right. That's interesting. So they had, they could increase their defences further. Yep. And they spent that time planting mines, uh, setting up fixed defensive positions, uh, uh, forming up uh, and preparing their artillery plans and uh and their armored units and they use their time very well every day of it just to yeah. say this this last uh, last year's country fencing yeah um we, we talk about ukraine having agency of course the west has agency too and where our agency i think really comes into play is a decision of how much support we give them particularly clearly the weapons uh before we talk about america and its current sort of politically inspired denial of supplies of course prior to that counteroffensive, there were big debates around air cover around uh, armor you know tanks um would would could there have been a different story if they'd had a had an air force if they'd had a, a bigger um sort of tank army can i come back to that in one minute yes about this time last year 
I was in uh, Sweden at the very distinguished Swedish think tank Cipri, and mm. uh, as a result of that, I wrote an article for Cipri concerning the uh, or advocating for long-term planning for the building of a, of a Ukrainian army over a period of years, understanding that war is going to go on was going to go on for a number of years, and even if it didn't, Ukraine would need to continue to defend itself. Yeah. And in that article, and there were several other things in British media as well, but never mind that. You know, what one, well, I advocated for um, beginning that planning late in early 2023, right? It's too late for that before. Um, and pointing out that the West, including the United States, but not only the United States, has vast stores, or have, yeah, still does, of various form, forms of weaponry and weapon systems that whilst they may not be able to be delivered immediately for various technical and mechanical reasons, not least the fact that it needs to be taken out of preservation, all that detailed stuff, um, uh, or indeed maybe in service, hmm. decisions have, have to be made to look out one, two, three, five years yeah. to, to where Ukraine should be then. And of course, those capabilities, which would need to be developed, included a coherent artillery park, Tank forces, which aren't as important now as perhaps were, but artillery certainly, and of course air power, as you said. Yeah. And we've had a lot of discussion about the F-16s, and I've always thought that the F-16, whilst important, is in no way going to be decisive because it's yeah. not designed for this kind of uh, battle, and mm. better people than me have opined on that to a very good great length i don't need to repeat them but i'll refer you to to, to um uh, justin bronk for a start at ruzi knows a lot more about this than i do but whilst it will work it will cause damage to the russians it will not win the war uh, no weapon system is a game changer except maybe starlink to us for communications command and control purposes mm. but um you know, air power is a. The jets are only one component of 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 dozens to to yeah. to apply air power properly. But the other thing was that if you're going to talk about airframes, and the best airframe is for this kind of war and for the way the Ukrainians fight it, I understand, is our aircraft like the Gripen, which the and I think we've discussed this before, the the which the uh, Swedes have and yeah. will not uh, come out of service in their Air Force till 2026 or so to be replaced by other Gripens, later model ones. But the point is here that that's a decision you make. Are you going to, like every Western power has to make this decision, are we going to keep the, the stuff in our inventory against the possibility, probably fairly low at the moment, that we'll have to use them against the Russians? Or are we, or are we going to make the decision to, to, to take a certain risk on board? And this is for Europeans, like the Danes have done with their artillery, and say... Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to take risk on this and we're going to uh, fight the war that we have in front of us rather than we're going to we may or may not have in five or ten years and uh, those decisions weren't made last year they're not being made now and that's before we get to the americans because in terms of the lack of planning for long-term planning which possibly could have avoided the arm pass threat now um, the americans are, um, are, are miles ahead of of, of Sorry, sorry, equally culpable, but they have resources that are miles ahead of the Europeans, as you know. Yeah, indeed. And so, I mean, Griffin's a great example, because as you say, the it's an aircraft that would be much better suited to the environment in Ukraine. Uh, it's one that, um, you know, is made in Europe. There are, there are all kinds of uh, sort of opportunities that might be there for, for it. But but obviously Sweden on its own as a relatively small country and, and only just a NATO member couldn't be expected on its own to have just sort of given up its air force um, as a as a sort of unilateral choice. Um, but if we talk a bit about America, it is that there seems to be a a strange political takeover of the Republican Party by you know by the the MAGA movement, which includes this weird sort of symbiosis with russia you know no, no, it's I'm, I'm not saying that they're, they're russian agents necessarily but you've you've got certainly they're under an influence of that they seem comfortable doing things that are helpful to russia um but it's also the case isn't it that even when america was supplying ukraine uh that it was actually more cautious you know off perhaps um un unexpectedly so in, in in a world where we're used to america being sort of hawkish and and more gung-ho 
uh, that America was often cautious, holding back on the tanks, holding back on the F-16s initially. Uh, and it was almost as if the Americans wanted the Ukrainians to fight the Russians to a standstill, but didn't want them to defeat the Russians. What, what's your feel on that question? I think that's exactly right. And if we examine what General Austin, who's a very fine general, uh, he has a history with us, actually, in the UK. He was the man who took over, or his division took over from the Brits in Basra uh, in the handover ceremony in 2011. It was impressive then, I think it's impressive now. But one thing he said was, April 2022, uh, our purpose is to damage Russia so that she cannot, do, I'm paraphrasing, to cannot do the same again, in brackets, to a NATO power. So yeah. uh, the upshot of that seems to me be that quite, the Americans are quite happy institutionally to keep this growling on um, as long as it's causing Russia casualties. Uh, which I think is distinctly unwise, as we're seeing. But concerning America, if I can just put this into an operational context or a tactical one, as you know, because we were told this a lot, weren't we, when, when you and I were there, when, when it got down to brass tacks, one of the more important things that the Ukrainians need are just the basic connective tissue of, of armed forces, things like, okay, all the personal kits, which certainly most soldiers don't have, we can, we can um, let's not park that, actually, that needs to happen. So all soldiers are properly equipped, body arm, and all the things that our soldiers were. Not something Europe can definitely. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Definitely do. And it won't take a lot to be candid. But then there are also resources that we could, we could apply to them, which we've also got, which is armored mobility. And that just means it doesn't even need to mean armored vehicles or these Gucci, as the army would say, uh, striker vehicles or um, mm. Bradleys and all the other stuff that, have gone to a greater or lesser degree there already. Just Land Rovers, yeah. Toyotas, Corollas. Uh, when I was in Bosnia, we drove around in Kukvis, which are Chev Chevys. There were thousands of those in reserve, and I don't know where they are now. Probably they've been scrapped. Doesn't matter. But that's the, that basic stuff has to yeah. come first, right? That's the connective tissue, even for yeah. the casualty extraction, and we could get into that as well. But then, I'll, I'll just just to put in context, then what the US has in reserve which will never be used, right? So there are 8,000 M113, which we, we, we call 432s or 430s, um, which are armoured boxes, right? The Ukrainians use those brilliantly. 8,000 they have in storage. They have, I think, is it 800 M109 155mm artillery guns, which are mobile artillery guns, self-propelled. And count them, 2,500 M1 tanks. None of these will ever be used in a war with China. They simply can't be. And indeed, 500 of those tanks were given up by the US Marines recently for that very reason. Now, those are well, not quite cost-free, and they would take many months to free up. It would be a long time before they could get through. But the decisions to send that stuff could have been made a year ago, 18 months ago. Never mind the tanks, the M113 armoured vehicles, all the kit for the, for, for the army the troops and all that uh, less uh, the, the vital stuff you need before you get into any con anything controversial to have made a made a, a strategic decision a year ago 18 months ago that we're going to sustain these supplies and we're going to plan for that sustenance now for three five years because they will need it but those decisions were not made that's where the real negligence lies now the extempore stuff concerning the republicans look i don't know enough about it but that this problem will not have ar arisen if funding had been applied then, going yeah. forward, and it never was. Yeah, that's fascinating because you and I both know private citizens, groups of people who are raising funds to buy Toyota Hiluxes. Yeah. But what you're saying is that there are literally tens of thousands of vehicles sitting around, probably parked in a desert somewhere in, yeah. in, in the west, western side of the US. Yeah, um, or, or in Europe in depots. I mean, okay, I'm yeah. talking 100 years ago and I was doing their stuff in the Balkans and, and whatnot. Uh, and the, and we, we knew the, where they were, and that's ex-NATO. So maybe they're not there anymore. But you know what? There's plenty more where they came from across yeah. the pond. And indeed, I would venture to say on this side of it too. Just yeah. the basic stuff. Yeah. 
so that that comes to a a question about uh the west and particularly europe's state of health both defense industrial but also actually defense full stop um if if america is uh sort of off the scene and and obviously this could get a lot worse you know president trump he might leave nato he he might just ignore nato or, or treat it with even greater contempt than he showed when he was last president um I, I know that you've done a lot of work on the degradation of Britain's own national defence, uh, but we, we're also in a situation where, for example, as a continent, we can't manufacture artillery shells, which is an extremely basic technology, uh, at sufficient scale to supply Ukraine, you know, and that's after having committed to doing so. So it wasn't even, you know, that that what that was something that was being talked about over a year ago. Um, so uh, what... What do you think Russia is learning from this? Because in a way that that's, you know, the reason we need strong defence in Europe is is mostly on account of Russia, isn't it? Yes, there won't be any European powers involved in a, in a Western Pacific conflict. Australians might, they're obviously not in, in Europe. Um, oh, uh, what they will learn is the value of disunity, of... Um, a disconnected procurement system. And you'll remember, Arthur, when you and I were on that tour last year, and there were people, I better not be too specific, there were people in certain Central European countries who were yeah. arms makers. They yeah. could not wait to get the orders yeah. for procurement, for ammunition, for guns. There were some astonishing facts they gave us. They were raring to go, very capable people, some of the most, um, um, some of the best kit and ammunition in the world made in these countries that I'm talking about. I'm certain they haven't received orders even now. Yeah. Uh, and the gap between cup and lip, as it were, in Europe is 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 very great. That's even before we start start on, on the UK's military uh, preparedness. There's two exceptions really. The first, in terms of capabilities, uh, is um, is Poland at the moment, mm. which is building, as you know. Finland, of course, is always always formidable. Sweden too, and France, which is yeah. another formidable military power, but does its own thing. I mean, you saw last week. I, I had a, a quest for comment uh, from right, first I knew of it really, but it went down badly in in Ukraine. That the, the French had refused to authorize the procurement of shells from South Africa and Pakistan. I think. Um, we yeah. have to be corrected by uh, Pakistan element, but certainly South Africa on some basis unclear to me. So, so by, by European, I think is the idea, you know, that, that we well, should... by French, I should imagine. Yeah, just, yes. probably. Yeah, yeah. The, the other two objectors were Cyprus and Hungary, I think. So she tells you something. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, if that's the kind of paper that's going on, then we really are in a pickle, aren't we? Yeah, indeed. Um, I wanted to to shift slightly and talk actually about the nature of this war, because uh, you wrote this book, as I mentioned, Losing Small Wars. And one of the things about that was that there was never any debate that in an actual sort of kinetic engagement that Western forces could defeat, you know, Islamic State or, or the Taliban or whatever. The, the question was whether you could win a war at, at the level of sort of society and, and, and the population. But... Uh, what we're looking at now is is two large modern countries um, fighting what you might call a, a a sort of a total war. Certainly for Ukraine, it's a total war. Russia's trying to pretend it isn't, but it might increasingly look that way. A, a peer on peer conflict, and it proves to be incredibly costly, both in terms of of weapons, but also human lives. And I think one of the myths of the um, of of the sort of era of 9-11 wars that you and I experienced was that they were relatively clean, that, you know, small teams of specially trained troops could go and carry out strategic strikes and and, and most people would carry on living their lives. Um, so this these large peer-on-peer uh, -peer conflicts, such as the Russia-Ukraine war, um, does that tell us something about how we sort of perhaps had our eyes off the ball of what, where warfare really was and, and that these these little wars were kind of sideshows. Yes, they were displacement activity and uh, uh, for which we were well equipped. And I think you could, I certainly couldn't put it better than you did there. We, we took our eye off the ball to 
to analogise, but um, I've always felt that over the last most of the last twenty years, the Ministry of Defence really should have been concerning itself with its advertised role rather than conducting hopeless expeditionary operations in places we weren't welcome. And this idea is, and you and I may disagree about that, I don't know, but you know, concerning Yemen, for example, I was at a meeting of senior, well, wherein there were senior military officers four weeks ago exactly, and they were very, uh, say, crowing, they don't do that, but they were pleased that four RAF aircraft had uh, delivered strikes in Yemen that had had strategic effect. And the strategic effect, my view, was that they had confirmed to the Arab world uh, or the Islamic world more widely that Britain is now fighting for Israel. That may not be a view that's welcome here, but there it is. That's a view mm. taken there. And that's how it's read. That's yeah. how it's read, right. That's the strategic effect it had. And, of course, playing mini-me to the United States doesn't always play well either. Um, but that kind of expeditionary capability allows us to do that. Not many countries can, to be fair. It was, a, in term, on its own terms, it was an impressive operation. That kind of thing we can do now. I don't think we'll be able to do it into the future much. But, um, but of course, what we can't do is assure our sea lane um, security in the Northeast Atlantic, which has been the primary role of our armed forces, specifically the Royal Navy, now for about 400 years. And so yeah. we can no longer fulfil. And that's right on our doorstep and has direct impact on our economy. Right. And, and there's a connection which is, is somewhat abstract in that both of them involve maritime supply supply lines. Yeah. But uh, you know, that's one choke point. And we can get around that. And there are insurance implications, of course. But what we can't escape is the vital... Um, the one vital area in our strategic security, which is the Western, what we used to call the Western approaches, that's Ireland and points yes. to the West, I should say. Now, Ireland, uh, Ireland's irrelevant. It's criminally ignored its defences, so it's left to us to do it, as it always generally is. But unfortunately, we can no longer secure the Western approaches, which now include not just maritime, purely maritime traffic, but also cable traffic, internet traffic, yeah. into Ireland, by the way, and of course, more importantly, into the West Country, uh, the Navy simply doesn't have the capacity to do that. It's a capability. It doesn't have the capacity to do that and all the other things that's of it. Yeah. And that's before we get into more controversial stuff concerning the nature of our nuclear defences and so on, which, again, may well be a displacement activity, which we don't yeah. no longer require, but that's a bigger debate. What the Russia-Ukraine war seems to tell us is that the idea that we could rely on a very small professional military with very cutting-edge equipment uh, that kind of war cannot be fought against Russia, as far as I can see. Not by us, no. I spoke to a senior artillery officer over the last year who told me that uh, we have 12% of the artillery that we had in 1989. I won't get into the Navy, but that's equally, equally poor, actually, although in different, slightly different context. We have less than 10% of the number of tanks what we do have, of course, coming out of our ears are various special duties, special forces, special operation groups, special support groups, yeah. which are of very limited utility in this kind of war. There are some utility, but they are not, uh, uh, they're not war winners. Interesting, yeah. by the way, only yesterday, the Americans, because they can't like us recruit to their uh, full complement or anything like it, are uh, rearranging their army and they're moving away from things like what, what what they call security assistance forces, what we call uh, rangers and uh, special uh, operations, mm. groups, special and security assistance forces. They're moving away from that. In fact, they're disbanding some of their regiments wow. uh, because they're moving towards counter-drone capabilities back into the sort of heavier uh, element of, of an, attrition, an attritional, an attritional uh, capability. Yeah. And we are left with these legacy capabilities in the army at any rate at the ex direct expense of conventional capabilities which we frankly no longer have i mean you'll remember a very senior officer who was with us uh, i don't know if you were there when we had this discussion uh, a very senior british officer i'll tell you it was, it was richard sheriff general sheriff who wrote a great book called war against russia 2016 prescient in many ways and i asked him i said general can we put together as we have undertaken to do to NATO to provide the capability of, a, of an armoured division 
Miss Whirl said, we'd need a lot of foreign help. We might be able to put out two thirds of it. Need to be backfilled with, and backfilled with another brigade. And you see this being said again in the Parliamentary Defence Commission. Yeah. But even if we could put that out in the six months it would take to pull it together and get it to any operational area, we can't replace it. So, in other right. words, if the, if that were as it would do, attrited, so in other words, take it, if it were destroyed or seriously damaged, with what do you replace it? And we don't have that capability that's that's that's, that's ready to go. Now, I don't for listeners who aren't very familiar, what, uh, how many people in an armoured division? You would have, uh, well, about 12, uh, no, wrong, about 20,000. Yeah. And by comparison, what, what numbers are fighting in the field in, in Ukraine? Ukrainians, uh, uh, President Zelensky said the other day they had 800,000 in their army. And most estimates put the Russian army in the region of... I mean, you know this better than me. I think they they would say people like Mike Kaufman would say um, five to six hundred thousand at most. But yeah. we're looking at hundreds of thousands, north of a million, yeah. Uh, yeah. into which an armored our armored division would sink in a week. Yeah, and um, what's really interesting about that is I think, like a lot of people, I've always known that the British Army is too small. But there's that sort of assumption that yes, but NATO's big, and if you add it all up, it's big. But if you take America out of that equation, even when you start adding up these little one-off units, um, 20,000 here and there, and, and less, obviously, with lots of smaller countries, actually, NATO isn't very big at all, is it? And to put that into context, the Danish, as you know, I think you mentioned, gave away all their, you haven't do it now, uh, gave away all their artillery, which yeah. consists of 15 guns. So, uh, yeah, the Germans... Uh, they, they, they're pushing now to put together a brigade of four and a half, five thousand people in a couple of years. Right. So in a couple of years from now, they hope to be able to deploy a brigade of nearly five thousand people into the into the Baltics. They can't do it now. And yeah. so you know, maybe the French can put together a division. Probably they can. But they, whether they'd be willing to do so is another matter. Um, the Finns who would be there, but they would defend their own homeland. We could go on. But, you know, yeah. it would be piecemeal and, and penny packet stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that takes us back to Ukraine, because it we, this conversation would lead anyone to conclude that Ukraine must win, uh, because if they don't, Russia doesn't doesn't look at the rest of Europe and feel particularly threatened or worried uh, and, and might might choose to, you know, make make a bit of an excursion here or there. Um, but we're now into this war of attrition. You and I uh, sometimes go to sort of similar briefings where we learn that the that the war in Ukraine is is not really moving. It, it's a war of attrition uh, and an attritional war in which uh, there's a huge um, imbalance in scale, not necessarily with just with manpower, but, but perhaps more more importantly, with kind of resources and weapons and so on. Uh, that that looks quite tough for Ukraine, doesn't it? So what what are your what's your sense of of the future for Ukraine in in a kind of attritional conflict? I pick up two points you made and respectfully disagree with one of them. The, yeah. the, uh, there is movement now on the front. So we're speaking now in very early, very late, late, late February. Yeah. And the Russians have moved now six miles, I think, west of uh, of Divka, which they took two weeks ago. Yeah. So so things are moving there. They're moving because, and this is second issue, uh, I don't think this is a disagreement, uh, where uh, manpower comes in. Mm. And... I think it's a really good question. It's rarely asked, certainly not by me. Uh, what what what's the centre of gravity of this war? And I think there's a good case to be made that it's manpower. Yeah. Uh, plus, oh, obviously, you've got no point in sending. As I said earlier, there's no point in sending people into battle without proper equipment or the systems to yeah. sustain them and support them. But manpower is what you need, and the Ukrainians are now uh, threaders. Let's say in that technical term. Uh, and, and clearly in serious serious trouble. You know, they're trying to mobilise half a million people. What the next question, of course, is: Do they have the capacity to to train them properly, or equip them, or even recruit them, yeah. given the levels of casualties? So the next stage is: Let's obviously there are two uh, counterfactuals. One is that the Americans come come up with their help. I think even then, the Ukrainians will struggle because of the lag on that for a start. Yeah. Secondly, the manpower issue. Because in an attritional war, it's the objective of each side, as you know, to 
to, to wear away at the other side. Right now, the Ukrainians, the Russians can probably sustain that longer, both in material and people. The other counterfactual is that the, the other scenario is that they don't get the help. And in that case, they are honestly, bluntly staring at defeat for, for the reasons that probably will be clear. I think we have to say that because that's the way it is. That's what they say, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Whatever um, defeat looks like. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the, the lessons that Putin learns are starkly different because there was a time when we said the lesson that Putin learned was that he couldn't take Ukraine, Finland and Sweden joined NATO, um, and, uh, you know, it looked like that that Ukraine was at great cost to itself teaching Russia a lesson. But yeah. it now feels as if um, Europe and North America has, has taught Russia a different lesson, which is that at the end of the day, we haven't got the staying power. Exactly. Staying power and will, political and I don't yeah. say military. I mean, I don't detect no, no uh, lessening on the military will. Uh, for all the critique I have of the British Armed Forces, I can't say they're not motivated. Or professional no, or dedicated. And they're all yeah. dedicated to that. Um, the problem is that the support they've been given um, and long-term neglect that uh, will become apparent, I think, over the next few years, even more than it is now. Yeah. So I guess then, the, you know, we, we've talked ourselves into a relatively um, uh, <laughs> sort of a depressing corner here. Yeah. Uh, there are, there are, there are, there are ways to push back. I mean, one thing that one can observe is, for example, Germany, which is now getting close to having delivered half the military aid that the US has delivered, when Germany is is much less than half the economy and militarily a fraction of, of the US. So so we, we've seen these major changes. Sweden, as, as mentioned, you know, joining NATO, something that no one would have dreamed of, of happening, you know, reversing hundreds of years, literally, of, of, of neutrality. Um, so and and then perhaps most most relevantly most recently you've had uh, President Macron. Um, he has the habit of of sort of ruminating on some fairly unexpected things in pub public. But this week he ruminated that maybe uh, there would be French troops on the ground in Ukraine if if necessary. Um, so it feels as if that people do understand what's at stake, even if they haven't yet taken the decisions necessary to prevent disaster uh do, i mean is that just posturing or what, what what's your view i'm saying the macron state that it's to me a little bit like flag waving you know let's see let's mm -hmm. see let's see what the response is and the response is pretty negative and i think rightly so but uh others may differ uh posturing maybe you could say he's got a bit of form for that and mm. of course it's highly unlikely right now that anybody would uh certainly western europe i think accede to that um, I don't think it's going to happen for what it's worth. Mm. I don't think it should. I mean, you know, the, the, the risks of that outweigh even the terrible losses that uh, would be the alternative. But uh, yeah, expect you could. also, I mean, yeah. On, uh, also, I mean, ultimately, what, as we just said, we don't, Western Europe doesn't have armies of a scale that could sort of nudge the dial anyway, does it? That, that's right. You know, so certainly we we couldn't. We could get into the details of who could and who would, and yeah, that's a very short list uh, with very few resources, frankly. Yeah. Um, and my, my concern now, and has been for a long time, is, uh, and you and I have had a lot of experience of this, is the, you know, let's let's assume there's a, this comes to some kind of stop in the next couple of years, either hopefully with some kind of Ukrainian success or something else stops anyway, and then, then what? Um, yeah. but, you know, I spent a long time in the Balkans after the wars there, during and after the wars there. And a uh, little time in Iraq, and you spent a lot more in Afghanistan, all the other places. And the wars there were lost after the fighting. And yeah. we cannot afford to have a failed state or a fracturing state in Europe uh, going going for the next one or two decades. We yeah. simply can't afford that. I think that sort of long-term perspective, probably that's what Macron is particularly concerned about as well. But very few people, and one has to give credit to, to Macron for this, seem to have that long-term horizon scanning capability, looking what well, what happens then. Yeah. If you have a, a defeated, depleted, failing or failed state in, in Central Europe, because a lot of Ukraine, of course, is in Central Europe, bordering yeah. the EU, 
and uh, internally wrecked with a fractious or potentially fractious political system and a history of gross corruption and um, regional rivalry. So where's that going to go? And that's a worst case, but you know, that's what we should be looking at. If we don't look at that, yeah. we're defeated, we're, we're in dereliction of duty. And that should be aimed off against now in some way. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's people need to, you know, that if, if we think about, uh, you, you have these sort of micro states that Russia props up, you know, fake countries, Transnistria, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, and so on. And they are um, the hotbeds of criminality, of organized crime, of all kinds of sort of negative outcomes. And then, then just look at how big Ukraine is on the map. You know, it's, it's Europe's exactly. biggest country, except for Russia itself. Uh, so that the prospect of a of a sort of chaotic and, um, as you say, kind of, uh, you know, de defeated and, and basically sort of destroyed Ukraine sitting there in the middle of Europe is is really um is 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 one that we we definitely want to avoid. Yes, it's ten times the size of Bosnia. And um in Bosnia we manage even now. We manage mm. the, the, yeah. the, the 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 it's a frozen conflict, speak to Bosnians, and they will tell you that it can it can thaw very quickly. And Bosnia is I would say 20 times easier in Ukraine given the levels of damage and devastation and mayhem. Yeah. Uh, detritus that, that's there already uh, yeah yeah that's what we're looking at if this goes wrong well i think on that sobering but in, important observation uh frank just remains for me to thank you very much for talking to me today that's a real pleasure arthur and a privilege thank you very much Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines, presented and produced by me, Arthur Snell. The theme tune is by Matty Benbrook. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.